O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all of these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels, and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. Sorry, I don't know why that's funny. Um, These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are present, sent to my lord Esau, and moreover he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third, and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead ahead of him, and and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. But then he said, Let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of, of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is God's word. Julie, thank you. Uh, if you thought that was one of our longest scriptures, that was only the 17th longest we've read here. Um, it, it was long, I acknowledge, but there have been longer. And uh, my friend Rod says that in churches like ours, um, you have to explain a lot because not everybody has the same amount of church background. So we will learn a lot, but I want to acknowledge two things that I have learned today. Um, number one, John is far more righteous than me. He's never even stolen anything. The man has never made an illegal download. It's incredible. Um, so I, I have learned this and I am humbled. <laughs> and, uh, the second thing I, uh, the second thing I've learned is that there's something about grouping of animals that is hilarious. I preached this same message at the other little church in our neighborhood and the reader there from their church, when they got to the grouping of the animals, just laughed and was like, sorry, 
Something about numbers and animals is hilarious. So new, new news for me, I did not know that before tonight. So that all acknowledged, I'll just say this, a uh, quick prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So for me, uh, middle school was a rocky season of life. You may um, relate to this. It's why I resonated with the Wonder Years show. And I realize that if you're born after the 80s, you don't know what I'm talking about. And so there's this vintage coming of age show that broke, um, broke ground and showing families as flawed and America as complicated. It's called The Wonder Years. And it didn't get out there on Netflix and everything because of licensing issues. It's a really problematic thing. You can get the DVDs now. I highly recommend that you go and educate yourself. But um, for those younger, it's like Diary of a Wimpy Kid, but good, okay? So like Diary of a Wimpy Kid, but actually quality television. So you should check it out. But back to me. Middle school was rough. Um, I, I was given, I, my parents loved me very much. They named me after British royalty. They cared for me. We were kind of poor, but I was loved. And I don't know what my problem was in middle school. I didn't have this like terrible life. Maybe it was that my best friend picked another best friend. Maybe it's just that my body was changing. These things are all true. But it was at least a little bit spiritual for me as well. I grew up in church with Christian parents. We weren't like overly Christian, but we were devoted. And my parents sacrificed a ton. My mom went a decade without buying new clothes for herself so they could send me, their son, to a good Christian school. And that was good. I, I, it went fairly well until middle school when I hated it in, with my entire being. Now, don't get me wrong. I didn't hate everything. There was, the, church was, or the school was at a church, and I liked the pastor there. Um, Peter Habegger and I went there. At the, we were at school at the same time. I did not hate Peter. Um, uh, but... I had an inner aversion to the doggone rules, okay? So here's a slide for you. I'm gonna illustrate some of these things. The first one that I'm not gonna show you is there was a rule about shorts, okay? A girl's shorts could not be short. I, as a young middle school boy, thoroughly disagreed with this rule. <laughs> um, to me, there's <laughs> something just wrong with the rule and I don't know why, right? You, you, neither do you. Uh, but I know that there was an utter hypocrisy that I saw because boys' shorts were not allowed to be long. In the, in the late 90s to early 2000s, a boy wanted his shorts to reach to about one inch above his shoe. That's where we wanted our shorts to be. But if you were a girl, you couldn't have shorts that were shorter than your fingertips. And the utter hypocrisy of this just ate at me. I couldn't stand it. And then we loved a thing called pogs. These are down here in the bottom. Anybody remember pogs? These are little cardboard circles that you hit with a slammer. And if you flipped over somebody else's pog, you got to take it home. Could we play this game at our school, Peter? No. Gambling. You remember. They said it was like gambling. And it was like, come on. Really? You know, these things cost 10 cents. Probably not even that much. Um, wallet chains. I liked wallet chains. There's this kid at our school who had one that dragged on the ground behind him. So at the time, at this time in history, the longer the wallet chain, the better. This is just known. Everyone knew it. It was, you were cool. It was like, I don't know, getting a tattoo now. It was like the coolest thing. And so, but what, we couldn't have wallet chains. 
because the first reason was they were gang related. And I was like, look, I listen to rap. None of them wear wallet chains. This is not what they do. And then that argument turned into like, well, they can be weaponized. I was like, are we, are we lassoing with these? What, what are you, t- nobody's weaponized. We're just trying to look good. And they did look good. They looked so good. Look at that. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, whatever we liked, they found a reason to ban it because the Bible said so. I remember the last one that just was the, this is where we reached a breaking point. And that's when they outlawed basketball shorts. And they were too revealing because boys in basketball shorts are so attractive. And I liked basketball shorts, okay? I had custom, like, Nike Wildcats basketball shorts I wanted to wear. I've saved up for these. And so I sat in my room and fumed over this, and I decided to myself that I no longer owned any basketball shorts. No, I did not. So I wore some of my shorts to school the next day, and I got sent to the office, and the principal said, why are you wearing basketball shorts? And I said, sir, these are tennis shorts. (laughs) And he's like, you know? And that's when it happened. I, somewhere in, in there, I think, it was, I think it was this incident, I walked out of the principal's office, and there was a lady who worked in the office who'd known me my whole life, and she said, what happened to you? You used to be such a nice boy. And I, I didn't know. I had no idea what happened to me. Um, But I'll tell you what, those words like burned into me though. They did. I am not a nice boy anymore. And I went on a a tear from about that point. I'm telling you, I look back on this, I was grappling with the core distinction between religion and the gospel. Inwardly. There were rules, and I was struggling with these rules. And who am I in relation to these rules? I was being trained in religion. Now, having rules is not wrong. I am pro-rules. I parent a teenager. I actually agree with the shorts rule now, okay? The short shorts are terrible. Outlaw them everywhere, as long as my kid's a teenager. Once she stops caring, whatever. Um, But we need rules, right? Parents need rules, societies need rules, schools need rules. But these rules must lead us to encounters with grace or they poison our souls. And that's where I was. Now enough about me, okay? Because we're talking about a much bigger story that you and I are a part of. And this story that Julie read to us out of uh, Genesis 32 is part of a big and a key moment in the life of the people of God as a whole, okay? It's where the nation of Israel gets its name, and in the New Testament, the identity of Israel is placed on every believer in Jesus, that you are the Israel of God. This is our naming moment, our defining moment as believers. 
Jacob's name is changed from deceiver to the one who wrestles and prevails. His identity is changed. This is a core story for everyone who believes and trusts in God. So what does it mean? We're going to look at Jacob and ourselves as we consider our pasts, our checkered pasts, our attempts to make amends, and then the unorthodox mercy that breaks in to this story and what it means for us, okay? I'm going to go through this story with you because I realize maybe we don't all know it. And it's going to be a flyover view, but it starts in Genesis 25, back a little ways. And in Genesis 25, I'm going to read just for a second, there's this key moment. So the generations, it's going through the generations of the great people of God. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived, and the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is it happening? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you will be divided, the one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, his body like a hairy cloak, so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. This is the beginning of the story, but it's an identity-shaping moment. At his birth, his name is Jacob. Esau is named after his physical characteristics. He is a red and hairy man, and that's what he's named for. Um, Jacob, though, is named for his approach to life. He takes by the heel. That's what the name means. And the inference of that name is he is a cheater. And Jacob, we will see, begins to live out of this identity. Here's a question. Was it fate? Or did Jacob live out of an identity that was spoken over him every time he heard his name? Now, the Bible does not try to sort out one from the other. God foretold what would happen. The older would serve the younger, but he doesn't spell out the psychology. Jacob was named this by his parents. He did hear this over and over. That affects you. Esau becomes the hunter in the family, the accomplished one. Um, in their day, this was how you became a great leader. It was you, you would be a hunter, you'd be powerful, you'd be confident. And Jacob is what we might call indoorsy. Um, I imagine he was probably into really obscure indie pop, perhaps, and art. And he could talk about his feelings. He would love mission, right? Where the men's retreat, the guys talk all the day. And the, we've had people, we had a guy visit one time who was like, men don't talk about their feelings. He's like, man, our men's retreat, they would not stop, you know? They're a bunch of Jacobs. He could talk about his feelings. His mother loved him. Um, his dad doesn't get him or understand him. The dad understands Esau. Esau would have been the natural leader of the family. He would have carried the legacy, but God said it would be the opposite. Why, is that why the script you know, flipped? Just because of their personalities? Well, not only that, Esau by birth order had the rights to the estate. It, it was supposed to be his. He was supposed to carry forward the family legacy. 
But one day, he's exhausted from work, and he's kind of in a dramatic mood, mood, it sounds like, and Jacob wants what his brother has. He wants the birthright. He wants to carry the legacy himself. And, um, and Jacob makes this insane offer. I, I think I watched my cousin Vinny for the first time on our trip to El Paso. Um, and there's this scene where Vinny wants the files for the court case, and he thinks he's not allowed to have them. And they're in a Ford Bronco. He's with the other lawyer, and he just goes, hey, I'd really love to see those files. And the guy goes, yeah, sure. And he gets on the phone, and hey, you send the files over to Vinny. And he's like, I'm all proud of himself. Like, whoa, I asked this crazy question. He just did it. And then, of course, his girlfriend says, uh, you idiot. They have to give you the files. And he's like, oh, okay. This is one of those kind of questions. Jacob asks him. He's just like, hey, can I have the birthright? Except here's the deal. Esau did not have to give it to him, nor did it make any sense to give it to him at all. There's, Esau is literally only hungry. And he gives him his birthright for a bowl of soup. Even the writer of Genesis sees this as crazy. And he says he despised his own birthright. Like he didn't even care. He didn't give a rip that he was the heir of the promise. Okay, so his gift, the gift that he was born with, he undervalued. So Isaac becomes a legal heir. Is it because God said so? God did say so. Is it because Jacob was kind of a cheater and took advantage of the moment? I think so. Jacob is kind of a, kind of a scoundrel. Or is it because Esau didn't value what he had? Well, that's clearly said in there too. The Bible doesn't pick one. It allows all three to be in tension. They are all the reason. All of it. And Esau, at this point, begins to hate Jacob. Um, now Esau, he goes and marries uh, foreign wives, wives of their enemies. The family dynamic gets really messy. Um, it's like when, you know, you're, you're like a libertarian and then, you know, they bring home the uh, liberal progressive boyfriend. You're like, ah. Um, it's, it gets tense. It gets tense in there. And so things aren't going so well, but Isaac still loves Esau. He still gets his son. He, he's doing some crummy stuff, but he still gets him. He wants to bless him before he dies. He knows he's not getting the birthright, but he wants to speak a blessing over him before he dies. And so he asks his son to go hunt and cook him his favorite stew. I've got a picture of it right up here. Um, you're going to see it right now. Ah, there it is. That's actually it. They serve it at the Polish cottage right now. If you go down Broadway Boulevard over there by Crave Coffee, you can get Hunter's Stew. It's so good. Everybody go over there. They really need your support. Um, Polish Cottage. There you go. Hunter's Stew. He wants his Hunter's Stew. And Rebecca, Isaac's wife, overhears the story. She she loves Jacob. She wants this for Jacob. So they hatch a plan. She'll disguise Jacob so he gets the blessing. And now remember, Esau despised his birthright and messed up the family. Jacob gets his feelings and he talks to his mom and he stays at home and they read together and they talk about art and all this stuff. And she's like, I want it for him. He's the good one. He's the one you can have a conversation with. So Jacob and his mom get elaborate and pull off this surprising switcheroo where they use animal skins and scents and a stew and Isaac is likely going blind here, so he gets fooled, and he blesses Jacob instead of Esau. And this time, Jacob hasn't only taken advantage of the situation, he has actively swindled his father and his brother, and he's just, 
I mean, he did it all on purpose. He colluded with his own mother. So Esau comes back and there's this painful scene where Isaac, the father, with anger in his eyes, his others, his real son comes in and he goes, oh no, your brother came deceitfully and took away your blessing. And Esau explodes. And he said, is he not rightly named Jacob? He's cheated me two times. He took my birthright. He's taken my blessing. And then he said to his father, have you reserved any blessing for me? And Isaac answered Esau, I made him Lord over you and his brothers, all his brothers I gave to him as servants with grain and wine. I've sustained him with my blessing. What can I do for you? And Esau said, have you but one blessing, father? Bless me. Father, bless me. And Esau lifted up his voice, weeping, and said, Be away from the fatness of the earth, will your dwelling be away from the dew of heaven on high? You'll by your sword you will live, you will serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you will break his yoke from your neck. And Esau heard those words, I think, and said, Okay, well, that's if that's all I get. And it says, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And he said to himself, the days of, war- of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill Jacob. But the, words of, uh, but the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah, the Bible says. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said, son, and said, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself by planning to kill you. Therefore, my son, obey my voice. Flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran. Stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you've done. Then I'll send and bring you from there. So here we are. Esau is furious with his deceiving, conniving brother. And we know, you can just sense from hearing this story, it is not fair that such a freaking cheat will receive God's blessing. Um, Jacob had a, a checkered past, and it's just not that he made some innocent mistakes or slipped or you know, was weak or was tempted. He literally personally violated the bonds of family, and he's terrible. I used to go to a church that taught that when you sinned, it was only sin if you sinned on purpose, and I don't think that's what the word sin means, but even in their definition, this dude's now out. He fully planned this. But shockingly, he is still in line for the blessing. God doesn't lift it. How can it be that such a scumbag will be the one that we all get named after, right? Is this story good or bad news? Is this a good story? Is this a problematic story? Jacob's identity was that of a cheat. It was his given identity. Um, I told you I was identified as no longer a good boy, and I can tell you that I lived out of that. Um, I've made many mistakes in my life, Some were accidents and mishaps and missed opportunities, but sometimes, when I'm honest, I've been devious and selfish in profound and embarrassing ways. Literally, if you guys knew what I'd done, you would not listen to me as a pastor, ever. Um, But guess what? If I knew what you'd done, I wouldn't want you in my church. That's not an original line to me, by the way. Have you ever heard that before? Pastors say that in churches all the time. I've heard that like 10 times. Why? Because it's true. (laughs) We're all very unworthy people. Between Jacob and Esau, we do not have one good brother and one bad brother. We have two bad brothers. One who disregards his his gift and doesn't care about it. 
and one who will cheat and lie and steal to get whatever he wants for himself. We have two different intersecting checkered paths. The difference is that one's going to get God's blessing. Why? How? What about you? What have you done? You know the list you don't want to talk about. There's, yeah, you know that if there was a short film of your life, some key moments that, that if somebody said, I'm going to blast it on all the social media channels, and you were like, please don't put that in there. Please don't show that piece. It's that stuff. And we've all been sinned against, and there's reasons we do it. We've been given false identities that have been spoken over us, and we live out of those. It's true. But it's still shameful what all of us have done. So we try to fix it. We try to make amends. Um, here's how it happens in Jacob, Jacob's life. Jacob's sent away by his mother, um, and then there's this whole story of him getting cheated, which is not insignificant. He goes to his, his uh, mother's brother, Laban, his uncle, and he falls for Rachel, his daughter, who is sweet and beautiful, and he's just in love with her. And Laban says, you got to work seven years for me to marry my daughter. And he says, sure, no problem. It says it went by like it was nothing. And then he gets to the marriage ceremony. Cool little thing about ancient marriage ceremonies is they veiled the bride, and you didn't get to, did to see their face till the morning after. And uh, Jacob went through his wedding with his veiled bride. They, their voices must have sounded the same because uh, he, they went to their, the end of their marriage ceremony and the consummation. He woke up the next day, and there was not Rachel. It was her sister, who had weak eyes, they say, which doesn't sound like an issue. It's like, well, I'm some glasses. <laughs> you know, what's the big deal? Some weak eyes. But they didn't have glasses back then. So I thought, I don't know. I've seen the wind in the willows and how mole, like, like is always doing. I don't know. So I imagine this just like woman who's like, ah, what? She probably wasn't that bad. Whatever the case, Jacob's not happy. He got like, talk about being swindled. This is like his move. He took his move. But, you know, it's not soup and birthrights. It's my wife. What are you doing to me? So he has to work another seven years to marry Rachel. And he does that because he loves Rachel a lot. So he ends up with two wives, which is weird, but it's not really what he wanted to do. So that helps a little bit. But at this point, what's going on with him? He's, he's kind of leveling out. He's growing up. He's getting the, the end of his own medicine, right? He's getting humbled. He's not really living like he used to live. And not only that, God is doing some incredible things in him. There's this scene in Genesis where there's a night where Jacob is in a place called Haran and he falls asleep and he takes a stone to be his pillow. And he, he starts to dream. And he has this dream where angels are ascending and descending and there's this, this voice, this man who says, I am the Lord. And then he restates the words that had been given to Abraham. Abraham, the Abraham story, we talked about it here at Mission a few weeks back, is this key moment where God makes a promise. He's going to bless all of the people that come from Abraham who have that kind of faith. This is a huge deal. He restates that promise to Jacob and says, I will create a people out of you. When he said that to Abraham, Abraham believed it and was righteous. We call this the covenant of grace. It actually started back with Adam and Eve, our first series of the year, that they, they didn't trust God, but then God followed up their sin with a promise of a redeemer, and they did believe that that was possible. And then we talked about Noah 
that God promised deliverance from the curse through an ark that he designed if Noah would lay down his strategies, the world's strategies for relieving their pain and listen to God's abstract but you know, God-given strategy for being delivered, that they would be delivered. And Noah trusted it. Abraham was told that he would be a great people and all the families of the earth would be blessed, even though he and his wife were far too old. And despite all the evidence, he said, okay. And all of this was a covenant of grace, a promise that God would give something that was not of our own effort or design, but was of God alone. And when they received it, they received it by being good, obedient, and deserving it very much, following the rules. Oh, shoot, I said that wrong. That's not right. No, they did. They received it by just opening their hands and trusting that God could do what he promised. That's how they received it. God restates that covenant to Jacob in a dream. Friends, this covenant gets restated to you every Sunday. Did you know that? Every time we come to the Lord's table, we're restating that covenant, and it matters that it's being offered to you. This is a moment where the Lord speaks, and you should listen. Because our question was Jacob's question. But let's look at Jacob's response. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he'd put under his head, and he made a pillar out of it and poured oil on the top of it. He called that name, the name of that place, Bethel. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go, will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my, my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be this, my God and this stone I will set up as a pillar for God's house and for all that you give me, God, I will give a tenth back to you. That's the same response Abraham had to God when he encountered this king called Melchizedek. He gave 10% of everything. He acknowledged, God, you own everything that I have. Everything belongs to you. What's happening? Jacob is starting to receive God's words and trust him, okay? Then we read 32, that Julie, that was all preamble. Wasn't that fun? Where he's gonna encounter his brother who wants him dead. Now, then you see this interesting thing. He's receiving, he's believing that God is for him now, but he moves back to kind of his cheating ways for a second. He starts to strategize. He sends these gifts out ahead of himself. He says, I'm going to send out my servants, and I'm going to send out my animals, all those animals that are hilarious, right? He sends them all out in front of him, and, he, and he's thinking, okay, maybe my brother, he actually says if he kills one group, then the other one can survive, and then he's behind them all, and then he's going to survive this thing, Somehow he's going to strategize his way out of this situation. He isn't being deceitful, but he is strategizing. Now, I want to take a second to illustrate something the Bible bears out over and over. Um, first, this would be principle maybe A, and we'll go to B, which is greater. There's a fine line between our sin and our strengths. Um, Jacob's gift is his strategizing in his mind, but that's also what he used to cheat his brother. That's something worth looking at in our own lives. Not only that, though, there is a fine line between being secular and religious in our approach to God. Um, I want to show it in this story. It doesn't just come through in the story. It comes through all throughout the scriptures. Consider that Esau here is the secular man. He's given a birthright by God, and he despises it. He doesn't care. God has given him everything, but he doesn't acknowledge it. And then he responds to God in anger. 
He doesn't, he doesn't like humble himself. He's angry at God. He doesn't want to have anything to do with God. He runs off to the foreign places. He's not going to be following God at all. But Jacob, consider him to be the religious man from birth. Think about it. Jacob wants to be the covenant bearer. He wants to be blessed. He wants to have a great family. He's always striving after what he's supposed to strive after. Always. He's doing all the things. Like I mean, he's after God. He's like, come here. From birth. But not for the sake of worship. But rather for himself. The religious person doesn't seek God for the love of God. They seek God for the benefits of God. This is the Pharisee of the New Testament, extremely righteous in their own eyes, but far from grace. When you read the New Testament, who is Jesus the hardest on? The religious person who is hypocritical. Who does he approach with mercy? Those who are able to acknowledge, I am not good and I am not obedient. By nature of being a church, chances are many of us are very religious. We are the most difficult crowd to reach with a message of grace. Often the sense of self-righteousness in our midst is strong. At least there's a sense of being better than them, not as bad as them. Do any of you relate to that? Now, by the way, not all religious people are in the church. I want to define religion as when a path is created by which a person can be considered worthy in the sight of their God or an ultimate deity, okay? Today, the fastest growing religious group worships the self. And the question it asks is, what path can I follow in which I feel most worthy in my own appraisal? And this is dangerous business because it's as polytheistic as our population and therefore it creates great potential for division but maybe even more concerning, and why I want you to have compassion on these people who are religious, is what happens when you doubt or question the deity. As Christians, many of us have doubted God. It's maybe every single one of us. And it's hard to throw contempt on the creator. It's, it can feel scary to say, you're not good. I do not like your rules. I don't like even who you say you are. But what happens when you are the ultimate deity? God can handle being rejected. God can handle your scorn. He's actually okay with it. But can you handle it? When the center is you and you don't measure up to your own standard, what will you do? And this is, I think, what a lot of our friends and family are dealing with. When I define what is right, wrong, good, and true, and I get it wrong, and I know inwardly, deeply that I have failed, and there's no one to blame but me. We should be compassionate. It's very crushing. So how do you spot a religious person a religious person, when you point out the wrong or the hurt that they have done to you, they will quickly deny that it's true. They have to maintain a sense of being righteous. 
you might see a mirror flip and, and them say, eyes off me. Religion feeds this impulse where if, if you show a mirror to somebody, you say, this isn't pretty. They say, but look at you. It's very hard to offer grace to a person who cannot admit their sin. The secular and irreligious person despises their birthright, and that is a problem. They will while out like Esau every time, and that, is, that can be a problem. But, less, but more often, they're, they're less likely to claim their own righteousness. Often, unfortunately, in our American context, the church is hardest on those people and misses the need to challenge or offer grace as a contrast to the religious, whether it's the religion of the self or the organized religion. And often we as Americans struggle to discern the difference between the two. So back to Jacob. He had a checkered past, so do we. Jacob attempts to make amends. He's being a religious man. He tries to make God his debtor. He's negotiating, he's cheating. Jacob is the type that puts coins in the vending machine and says, hey God, look, I'm doing this, you owe me. That's what the religious person does. And he's acting the same to his brother. Even here, he's strategizing, he's manipulating the situation. Look, I'm going to send some things ahead. Maybe I'll fix it. He'll attack them, kill them, I'll run. He's still acting the same. His attempts to make amends are just him living out of a more respectable and religious, religious version of the same self-centered approach to God and others that he's always had. He has matured his self-righteousness and made it look more palatable. I know how similar we can be. So what can be done to save us? Well, in Jacob's case, after all this strategizing, um, he sends his family across the fort of Jabbok and is left alone for a moment to wonder whether Esau will get his hide. And that's what we read in Genesis 32. It says, a man wrestled with him at that time until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip socket was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask me my name? And then he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob believes and reports that he wrestled with God. And there are probably a couple of reasons for that. Um, one must be that when his hip socket was touched, it went, you know, out of socket. Some of you may want, we watched the Super Bowl here the other day. These guys get, you know, full running. They just, boom, their hips are staying on. He just gets, like, he realizes he has wrestled someone who is far superior to him, who inflicts a wound on him, but he still prevails. Why? How? Right? He believes that God marked him with an injury and gave him a new name. From now on, Jacob, and it even says later in our text, he's limping everywhere he goes. So he is marked by God in, in, in his pain, right? But he's given a new name, which means 
He who strives or wrestles with God. That's his identity now, instead of the cheat. He has a new name that he's going to hear over and over now, and a new limp that he'll exhibit to everyone who encounters him. Not only is this unexpected in the narrative, this is truly unorthodox. Jacob does not manipulate, cheat, or strategize here. All of his religious stuff isn't working anymore. It doesn't factor in to this encounter. God faces him, strives with him, wounds him, yet he prevails because he's crying out for God's blessing. And he's changed. This gracious God encounter transforms him. When he sees his brother, he changes his whole plan. It's an interesting little nuance of the text. But instead of just sending his his family out in front, he kind of organizes them and he goes out in front of them. He bows down before his brother. He confesses his unworthiness to his brother. He offers gifts because he's been given grace to his brother. Am I stretching the story? Let's read it again. Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the servants with their children in front and Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And then he himself went on before them. That was not his plan. And he bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. He's like bowing sequentially toward his brother. This is a profoundly different approach. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children who God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near and their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near, and they bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And Esau said, what did, what did you mean by all the company that I met? All the servants and stuff that he, and all those animals, those hilarious animals. What do you mean by that? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. But Jacob said, no, please. If I've found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you accepted me. Listen to this. Please accept my blessing that's brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Jacob is transformed. He goes out in front. He humbles himself. He limps toward his brother with a new name and he sees that God has been gracious to him. Do you see the impact of this encounter with the grace of God? It changes the way he relates to others, to his brother. He's no longer the cheat. He's generous. He's trusting God. He's humbling himself. He's receptive. Grace has changed him, and it changes his relationship with his brother. This is the identity of Israel right here. It's very unorthodox. It's our new identity. This is the way we are to live. Those who strive with God, who are injured by his love, learn to trust, lay down their strategies to humble themselves, to receive what they could not cheat their way into or buy their way into or ever deserve. And those who can see that and experience that are called the Israel of God in the New Testament. And that name is humbling. I wrestle with God. By the way... When Jesus started his ministry, he quoted Jacob's dream in reference to himself. He said, 
to Nathanael, you'll see heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which is what he was calling himself. Jesus was saying, I was the Lord who spoke to Jacob. I was surprised when I Googled the site of Jesus's baptism, um, or sorry, not his baptism, of Jesus's, of Jacob's wrestling with the angel, with this man that he encountered. And I, and I found it's like really close to the baptism site of Jesus. And I don't know if Google got that right, but it's really interesting that like right in that same vicinity, very close by, this other brother would come and would wrestle with God in the wilderness of his temptation. After Jesus' baptism, he went in the desert to be tempted and he prevailed. Jesus, who never wronged his brothers, came as a humble servant in the first place. Isaiah said the, Isaiah the prophet said he was smitten by God and afflicted. Jesus' hip wasn't just thrown out. He was crucified by a collusion of religious and secular people. Christian orthodoxy is unorthodox. It's Israel-like. It's God coming to us. It's an encounter with God. It's striving with God. It's salvation by grace. It can be an, a painful experience because you have to lay down your strategies and everything that you hold on to. It's a renunciation. It's trust in the mystery mystery being that is striving with us. It's trusting in him instead of just fighting him. It's leading you to move toward your enemies, to humble yourself, to give to the undeserving like your enemy brother because God has so graciously given you everything that you need at the deepest level. Have you ever encountered the gracious God? I wouldn't be surprised at all if some of you who have been in church your entire life have never encountered the gracious God because Jacob grew up in the covenant. I wouldn't be surprised a bit if none of you, if some of you have never encountered him, and that's okay. Strive with him. Like, get in there. Like, seek the blessing from him. Get in there. Face him. Encounter him. Allow him to injure you in love. Uh, my friend Rod, uh, who I mentioned earlier, sometimes said when people talk about their ways that they're doing things without Jesus, he said, how's that going for you? Like, maybe if you haven't faced God yet and really, really, like, thrown your contempt out of deal with him, you might be surprised. You might think that's the scary thing. Well, how's it going for you without him? Maybe you need to do it. How could you trust God enough to be open to the pain that could come from really facing that? We have an opportunity that even the man we're named for didn't have because we can see that God entered in through Jesus the Son and strove with God in our place. He took the brunt of God's justice. Jacob deserved all kinds of pain. He was a terrible guy. And all that God unleashed on him was a hip joint problem. But on Jesus, his wrath was unleashed. And what does that mean? That means that all the things that you deserve, that movie that you don't want to be seen, Jesus has suffered for it. So you don't have to be afraid of that. We can see that God entered in through Jesus the Son and was willing to strive in our place. 
He goes out before all of us. He stands before our enemies. He stands before the greatest enemy. He humbled himself like a servant. He was killed by the religious and secular collusion so that by faith, we can actually become righteous before God, even though we're technically not, right? And when you see this, you can be transformed. You can learn to love God, to experience his grace and be set free from your self-serving, even if that's an identity you've lived out of since you were born, no matter what anybody's ever said about you. You may end up walking with a limp, having to humble yourself, but God can do powerful work between himself and you and you and others. All you do is open your hands and receive him. Lay down your strategies. And Jesus comes to you and said, this is my body. I broke on your behalf. This is my blood. This is the blessing of the Father given to you, though you don't deserve it. Christians, you are Jacob. You need this. This is the meal of the covenant. This is God restating the covenant to you. I've accepted you by faith and nothing else. I've died in your place. Will you open your hands and receive me? Will you believe it? I'm gonna pray at this time. There's gonna be two minutes of silence and then we'll take the Lord's Supper um, as we sing. Who can take the Lord's Supper? Anyone who can open their hands and say, I receive it. Um, if you can't right now because you're like not ready to humble yourself, then sit back and, then, and just, it's okay. If you can't right now because you're not sure you believe this yet, you're in the right place. <laughs> this is a good place to wrestle with God and you can sit back. Nobody's gonna judge you. We're gonna be thankful you're here. But for everybody who can open their hands, it's yours. It's a gift. Don't despise it. I'm gonna pray and leave two minutes of silence for you, like I said. We'll take the Lord's Supper and sing, and then we eat dinner, which is a covenant feast. Receive it from God and enjoy every bite. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for this story that defines us. We wanna trust you, Lord, but it's scary. It's difficult to do. Some of us are coming from a background where we've kind of been like, Esau or like Esau's great-great-grandkid that grew up way far away from all this stuff. And we want to we wanna be close to you. We want to know you again. We don't, we don't want to follow maybe in our father's footsteps or our mother's for that matter. Some of us, though, we've done that religious thing. We've wanted to be good and righteous in our own eyes. We posture ourselves. We put up a good front, but inside it's not going so well. God, would you receive us the way that we are? Can you handle us? God, as we come and confess before you, give us the boldness to say what we're really thinking, to wrestle with you. And would you bless us, please? So lead us now as we pray.